So we're in Hosea. We are in chapter 2. Now, what an intimidating calling that lays before the prophet Hosea. It is difficult enough to be called into service as a prophet, knowing that it will be your responsibility to deliver the weighty words of God to his people, words that typically involve rebuke, words that commonly involve correction, words that were historically not usually well received by the people of God. So it's hard enough to think of just the work of a prophet, but on top of that, Hosea has been informed that he's going to be playing a key role in a a real-life drama that will act as a kind of extended metaphor, carefully crafted by God to display the enduring and unfailing love that he has for those who belong to him. And what part does Hosea have to play in this drama? Oh, no big deal. You'll just be representing nothing less than the very love of God itself, the enduring, faithful, steadfast love of God. That is the part that Hosea is playing in this prophetic drama. His words, his patience, his commitment to his own life, or to his own wife, rather, will be a sign pointing to the mighty love of God himself. The way that Hosea will obediently love his wife, despite her great sin, will demonstrate the powerful way that God faithfully loves his covenant people despite their great sin. This is no small task for the prophet. There is no denying that apart from the provision of God, he's not going to be able to do this well. He's asked to do something beyond what man can endure. But thankfully, the Lord doesn't call a man uh, without providing for him the means by which he might be obedient to the calling. We learned last week that Hosea's own wife, Gomer, has not only committed serious acts of shameful adultery against him, she is currently caught up in that destructive sin. It has become the normal way of life for her. Now the bond that Gomer and her family have is is such a brittle, fragile bond that if something isn't done to turn her away from this heinous sin, then the family will surely fall apart. So Gomer has, rather, Hosea has enlisted the help of their three children to plead with their mother Gomer to call her to repent and to cast aside her sinful ways. So this morning as this story progresses and we learn more of the details of how this is going to play out, first we're going to speak of Gomer's two problems. We're going to talk about how Gomer is acting like a harlot by seeking the affections of false lovers. Secondly, we're going to see that she's falling, uh, she's failing rather to see her own husband as the one who has supplied her needs. The blessings in her life that are a joy to her, she thinks, are coming from her suitors, these wicked men who are not in covenant with her. But in reality, those blessings are coming from her very husband who is caring for her needs. So after we look at the two problems that that Gomer is dealing with, then we're going to see Hosea's two responses to those problems. We're going to watch as the prophet obediently takes action uh, to try to do something about this. He cuts his wife off from her sin, first and foremost. He's going to do something about this. He's going to recognize that the sin is damaging to the family, and he's going to stand in between. And secondly, he's going to make her feel the shame of her lack of faithfulness. So he's going to allow this this guilt that should be upon her shoulders to manifest so that she cannot feel comfortable with her sin any longer. He's going to do that not as an act of cruelty towards his wife, but as a necessary means by which she might be driven to repentance. And so, last week, Hosea was instructing his three children to plead with their mother, and today we are in verse 5 of chapter 2, where we're going to read through and study uh, until verse 13. 
For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Please bow with me for a moment as we pray and thank the Lord for our time in his word. Gracious God, I ask that you would keep me from falling short of proclaiming the full counsel of your word this morning. Help us as a people to receive what you have given. I pray, Lord, that we would not look upon Gomer with, uh, with disgust and think, how can someone become so sinful? But rather, we would see in her the potential we have in our own heart to neglect the good gifts that you have given to us and to give credit to the wrong source from which they came. We praise you, Lord, for being our hope and our joy, our rock and our salvation. And we ask that this morning that would become even more clear to us as we watch your servant Hosea faithfully and obediently play out the, the drama for which you have enlisted him. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. So to begin, friends, we're going to look at Gomer's two problems this morning. When it comes time to address a brother or sister who is in sin and to urge them to repentance, which last week we really focused on as Jose was trying to get uh, his three children to join him in this chorus of calling for Gomer's humility and repentance. We aren't doing our friend any favors if we speak so vaguely and use such generic terms in that confrontation that we leave plenty of room for them to remain in a state of denial about their own guilt. So when we confront a brother who is in sin and who is there, we pull them aside one-to-one, face-to-face, and we share with them their error. But we don't do it in such a way that they don't even know we're talking about them. We don't say, you know what, uh, maybe we know they're struggling with gossip. And we say, you know, so many times in the past I've, I've really been hurt by gossip. And when people say things about you that weren't meant for others, then it really betrays a trust and it makes you feel like this is not a friend or an ally that, that cares for me, that this is an enemy and I, I don't know who I can trust or who knows what about me. And man, that really hurt my, my soul when that happened in the past. And then just hope that that person picks up on that and realizes that they too are in sin. That wouldn't be a very faithful way to confront a brother or sister who has fallen into sin. Just dropping hints and hoping that people get it really reveals that we're more concerned about what that person thinks of us 
than we are about what they think about the truth of God. When we are so, so gentle with them that we don't even point out the truth of what they are battling against and their need to repent of it, when their sin is not even named, then really what we're trying to do is preserve our good standing in that person's sight rather than helping them be preserved in the sight of God. A sin that is to be confronted is a sin that must be named. This is part of the process God has provided for us to overcome. We battle the darkness of sin best by dragging it out into the light and getting a good look at it so that we can confront it for the ugly thing that it is. That is also why Scripture tells us that the process should begin face-to-face and one-to-one so that the person may have the opportunity to hear the truth without being publicly crushed by it and might grab hold of the opportunity to repent before there's a great need for public shame. And so as we progress through this second chapter of Hosea, the prophet is explaining to his three children why the time has come for them to plea and to cry out to their mother. Plainly put, she is in the habit of committing a grievous sin, one that needs to come to an end if the family of God is going to be healthy again. And so by these verses, we are witness to the formal charges that Hosea and his children have to painfully bring against Gomer, the one they love. Now keep in mind that these verses artistically are telling two stories at once. One story that is quite easy for us to relate to as it is told in the context of Hosea's own personal family on a scale that we can grasp. All of us have families and most of us, some aspect of our family has some brokenness in it. Sin has touched all of our families. And so we can relate when we, we know of two who loved each other at first but no longer are, are acting in harmony and, and according to the promises of marriage that they made with one another. We can relate to that. We, we, can, we can think back at our own personal histories and say, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen how ugly that is. I see what needs to be done in order to get in, involved and to hopefully steer that back in the right direction. But that's not the only story that's being told. In fact, it's, it's only an illustration of the greater story. The story of first importance is the story of the nation of Israel and the northern kingdom specifically that is threatening the covenant bond that they have with their God because they are ignoring the terms of that covenant. They are, in a sense, corporately behaving like a harlot. They are worshiping gods that are not the true God. They're worshiping false entities and they're giving to those false gods the glory that only Yahweh deserves. They have been doing this for such a time that God's patience is about to come to an end. Justice must be done. And so as God is telling Hosea to call out to his wife who is living in sin, he is also, in a sense, talking to the nation in the north, telling them to cry out to their leaders, to cry out to those who have led the nation in the north onto this path of disobedience and rebellion. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3, uh, says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he begins to codify the, the Ten Commandments for us, the Ten Words. And he says in the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. This was fundamental to the interaction that God intended to have with his people Israel. He was not content to be one among many gods. He was not content to be their favorite god. Yahweh was to be the only god that the Israelites worshipped. No one else 
brought them out of bondage of slavery when they were under the yoke of Egypt. No other God addressed them personally and entered into covenant with them. No other God made them a people when they were not even a people to begin with. Only Yahweh is their God, and there is no room in this relationship for a third party. So we're not dealing only with Gomer's offense to Hosea. We also keep in mind that Israel is breaking the first commandment by offering her attention and worshipful love to these other false gods. So verse 5 begins with Hosea naming his wife's ugly sin. She is behaving like a harlot. Though her love and affection should be for her husband Hosea alone, according to the promises of marriage that she has made to him, instead she is disrespectfully giving her time, her focus, her embrace to other men. Verse 5 names the sin and then gives us a glimpse of Gomer's motivation behind that sin. It says, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. This is the deceptiveness of sin, the self-deceptive nature of getting involved with a breaking of God's law. Gomer has been so accustomed to following her desires that now she thinks that these extramarital affairs are going to give her the things that make her happy, that satisfy her. We see here a tragic misconception. The blessings that this unfaithful wife thought she was getting from her despicable suitors was actually all coming from her own true covenant husband. Gomer is failing to see that her own husband is the one who supplied all of her needs to her. And so there's a great injustice being done and, and, and your heart may hurt as you read this passage and, and think about the difficult way that it must impact Hosea to see his wife praising others and caring for others and being satisfied in the arms of others when he is the one that cares for her needs. Whatever good you have in your life, let me assure you, it doesn't come to you by way of your sinful rebellion. It comes to you by the mercies of God alone. Any good thing in your life is a gift from God. James 1, verses 16 through 17, lays this out for us and makes it abundantly clear. James says in the New Testament, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This God who is steadfast and faithful, this God who does not waver in his affections for us, is the God who supplies our needs. And we should rejoice in this. This is a God who doesn't like us one day and then not like us the next day because we don't meet his expectations. This is a God who by his own power has drawn people into relationship with him and has washed away their iniquities so that they might be a suitable bride for him. He is the one that cares for our needs. He is the one that blesses us with what is good. He is the creator and the sustainer, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he clothes the lily of the fields. He feeds the bird of the air. It is his design that has caused you to long for belonging. It is his design that gives you the gifts and abilities that make you useful to others so that you might be a part of a church to which you might feel like you truly belong. Though we often give thanks to the wrong source in our lives, it is the mercy of our God that provides for us what we need. And so in verse 8, we read, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold 
which they used for Baal. Friends, those who bring sin into your life do not love you. They hate you, in fact. They are hating you by inviting you to disrespect the God that you profess to love and worship, the God who is the core source of your hope and joy. In Mark 9, 42, we read, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's how Christ feels about those who cause you to stumble and try to entice you into iniquity. God is not shy in warning us to take care about the company that we keep, knowing that the potential for corruption is certainly dangerous for those who are not firmly trusting in the Lord. And that's not just true of the New Testament. When we look back to the Old Testament, the Proverbs, again, is rife with warnings in this regard. Proverbs 12, 26 says, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads him astray. Proverbs 13, 20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So we have to be cautious. This is not to say that we are to never fellowship with those who are still in sin. Jesus himself was accused of of wrongdoing because he ate with the sinners and he, he supped with the tax collectors. But he didn't do so in such a way that their being, that their character was rubbing off on him. He knew the dangers of being around those who were in sin, and was determined to influence them for the truth and with grace. So be careful about who you spend time with. Evaluate and be honest with yourself. Am I light to this person, or are they darkness that shadows my light? If your doctor is writing you more prescriptions for pain meds than you really need because he knows you've got a habit, then he is not your healer. He hates you. He's your enemy. He is causing you to sin. He's he's pushing you towards addiction. The boyfriend who speaks grandly of love but tries to lure you into bed before any kind of covenant promise has been made, he is not your ally. He is a stumbling block to you. And though his words may sound like love, they are deception. They are a trap. The preacher who doesn't point you to Christ but instead convinces you to look to your own good works for peace and comfort, he is a saboteur. His lies might fill you with positive feelings, but if that peace is not founded on the unshakable work of Jesus, then he is not a blessing to you. That pastor is setting you up to fail. He's causing you to trust in what you can do rather than urging you to trust in Christ alone. Do not make the mistake of assuming that deception only works one way. We have noted here that there are those who we must be weary of who would try to entangle us in sin. But Gomer is not purely a victim of those who are outside of herself. She is not just a a bystander in the wickedness of others. To assume that would be to overlook one of the key factors that contributes to any one of us falling into sin. And that is the truth that mankind loves sin. Mankind wants to be allured by sin. We want an excuse that numbs our guilt and overrides our conscience. And this is one of the greatest practical shifts 
in the life of those who have been redeemed. If you are now a Christian, if God has confronted you with your sin and named it, and it is, it is many, right? All of us have fallen short of the glory of God by our sin. If God has revealed that to you and, and humbled your heart to the point where you've recognized that there is nothing you can do to overcome your own sin, if by the preaching of His Word you've come to realize that it is only the work of Christ that has redeemed you and you have trusted Jesus to be your Savior, then some kind of supernatural change has happened in your heart. We call that change regeneration. Once you've seen the extent of Christ's suffering that He endured to set you free from sin, then now sin no longer has the same allure that it did before. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, then you don't have the joy that you used to have in running towards iniquity. It doesn't give you quite the same thrill to break the law of God. Not eventually, at least. Sometimes even as a redeemed believer, sin can have a, an initial thrill. There can be a little sense of satisfaction that comes from breaking the law of God. But if you are truly His, then the Holy Spirit of God that resides in you will not allow you to remain satisfied with that uh, iniquity. God will convince you through His spiritual work that you have done what is wrong. If you desire sin, you desire it with a measure of shame, Christian. You, you might have felt guilt before, but now you are concerned with more than simply the consequences of sin as you did before Christ. You're concerned now with the honor of this God who gave His life to make you new. Your heart is no longer hardened like it was before. Your spirit is not dead to the convictions of the Holy Spirit. Christian, praise God for this change in you. Do not run from your conscience or ignore the warnings of the Holy Spirit. When you cannot stay content in sin, that is some of the greatest evidence of a person who has experienced the regenerating power of new life in you. Because before Christ came, you really didn't have a problem with sin. You might have had a problem when other people sinned against you because sin has a destructive character to it. But when you committed sin, your only hope was that you didn't get found out in it, that there wasn't a negative consequence to you. As a Christian, that changes fundamentally. We cannot have the same taste for sin that we did before Christ, or we have to stop and ask ourselves, am I really trusting Jesus as my Savior? This is all part of that nature of self-deception. Gomer is knotted up tightly in her sin. She is so married to the sin that she thinks that her bread and her water, her wool and her flax, her oil and her drink, she thinks that these have all come from the men who have made a whore out of her. And so too did Israel feel the same way. The nation as a whole had been taught firmly that there is one God and that no other deserves worship and adoration. This one God will be Israel's protector and provider like a faithful husband who guards her well-being and is diligent to supply her needs. And yet, despite the clear terms of the covenant between Israel and her loving God, she could not keep her eyes from wandering. See, there were other gods around, and I use that term specifically, little g-gods, other entities that claimed to be gods, other ideas that pe people pointed to and said, that is my God. Gods like Molech and Baal and Asherah. These gods were the gods of the Canaanite people who had inhabited the, the Holy Land before God judged them and used Israel to theoretically push them out. That was his 
calling upon Israel. That was his command to them. I'm going to give you this land. But in response to this great gift, you need to go and inhabit it and push out the land or the inhabitants of the land so that their sinful ways do not begin to impact you. We all are probably aware of the fact that Israel fell short of that command. They were happy to go into the land and they did some battle against the Canaanites. But rather than press them out of the land, rather than be the agent of judgment that God had intended them to be, they made their own judgment and allowed those Canaanites, many of them, to settle among them. They began to take their daughters as wives for their their sons. And that culture began to influence the culture of the Hebrews. And so rather than Molech and Baal and Asherah being the gods that used to be in this land and have been pushed out of it, those gods begin to contend with the one true God of the land, with Yahweh. And from time to time, circumstances might have made it seem as though the people who gave their love and devotion to those false gods seemed to maybe even be blessed for it. As those Israelites lived alongside Canaanites and alongside Moabites and Perizzites, they might see them worshiping Molech and giving profane offerings to that God, and they might be like, well, that's not what we do. But then that year their crops were really good. Those who worship Molech might start to experience some financial blessing. They might see favor in some providential way. And so then the Israelites would look at that and say, wow, maybe there's something good to worshiping Molech. Maybe I'm missing out because all I worship is Yahweh. And so then they would not necessarily abandon Yahweh, but they would begin to also offer some some kind words towards Molech maybe a small offering here and there. Maybe they'd buy a small, what we, they would call a household idol, and they would give some credit and some glory to Moloch in Moloch's particular area of expertise. And this kind of, this kind of hedging of bets was an insult to the God who had declared he would be everything that Israel needed. They began to grow discontent and covetous. Israel began to envy and to fear that if <clears throat> she loved Yahweh alone, She might be missing out on the blessings or the power that some foreign god had to offer her. And so what does that Israelite do? They should have honored the covenant that they had with Yahweh and trusted that if this is what God wants for me, then let the worshipers of Molech have their good crops this year. I know that God will sustain me. I know that God will get me through. But because many of them were more concerned with Yahweh's blessings and less concerned with Yahweh himself, they began to hedge their bets and worship these other gods alongside the one true God. Now let me ask you, church, you reasonable people, is that true love? Is the way that Israel was treating their God, is that authentic love toward Yahweh? When we look at other people and our most honest concern is, what can I get from that person? What sort of a resource might they be to me? Does someone have something better to offer me? What a sad imitation of love that that is. It's not what pressed God to come after you, sinner, let me tell you that much. It's not what you had to offer that led the Lord to make this decision to send His Son, Jesus, to take on flesh and to extend grace to you through His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 4 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, and In Sunday school, we thought about that this morning, this very morning, in the 9 o'clock hour. We were marveling at the the vastness of what God has made. When I look at your heavens, it makes me think, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
considering the beauty of what God has constructed. And there are things beyond what we can even fathom. Just recently, uh, Brother David was saying, just recently, in the last 10 or 20 years, we've discovered that this is not the only universe. There are more universes than the universe that we can barely even conceptualize in our minds, that there are many of them. So what God has made is infinitely bigger than we can fathom, and yet God cares about human beings living on one tiny little planet floating around one galaxy in one universe of all that he has made. What is man that he is mindful of us? We possess nothing unique or noteworthy in ourselves that God lacks. Did you know that? We don't have anything that he might find valuable for its own sake. You are not a resource to be mined by God, to be taken advantage of. And that is why we affirm the doctrine of God's aseity. Now, this is one of those theological words you don't use a whole lot, but it's worth learning, church. When we think of the aseity of God, what we're thinking about is the fact that, that God is, that he simply exists apart from the influence of any other being. God needs nothing. He is the self-sufficient one. And that is why when Moses is standing before the burning bush and he, he asks God, who's just getting ready to send him into Egypt to declare to one of the most powerful men in the world that he needs to let all of his slaves go. He says, who am I supposed to say when, when they ask me who sent me? And God, in an act of great love, reveals his personal name to Moses. And he says, tell them that I am has sent you. The name Yahweh means I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. And this, this speaks to the aseity of God. It means that he does not have any other being that he relies on in the whole world, in all of existence. As the great I am, God exists regardless of whether anybody else exists or not. His being is in no way contingent on any other circumstance. I love how the second... Um, London Baptist Confession puts this in the second chapter of that document. It says, The Lord our God is but one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Now, does that sound like a God who's desperately looking around for someone to love him? Does that sound like a God who has this great void in his life, and unless he creates human beings, and, and unless he can woo them to love him, that he won't be complete? Absolutely not, friends. God wasn't looking upon you and saying, wow, if I save these people for myself, then they can do me some good, and, and maybe my life will be better for it. He didn't look at you as a resource. In fact, Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, gives us the humbling reality of how he looked upon man in saving him. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Christ didn't look upon you and see a resource that he could put to good use. Christ looked upon you and saw somebody who was desperately hopeless without his love. And if you are a believer today, it is because he said, I'm going to love this person anyway. Even though they will bring to me only burden and only care, even though it will come at great cost to myself, I will redeem this individual. I will make them my own. He saves sinners like us, not because he needs to save us, but simply because it pleases him to do so. So in Philippians 2.13, we read, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. He has saved you for his good pleasure for himself. Despite our sin, through the cleansing work of Jesus, God counts us as lovely. Friends, that is love. Love is not looking around and saying, well, who can I connect to who might be able to do me some good? That's not love. That's economics. That is, that is cold. That is using another person for your own good. It's manipulation. Gomer has traded the genuine love of promise for the cheap counterfeit of lust and self-gratification. And her actions are an accurate picture of the way the vast majority in the northern kingdom of Israel are thinking about their God at that same time. Gomer's desire for more of this self-serving pleasure drives her to double down on her sin. I know that this happens sometimes. We get confronted by our sin. We get called out for what we're doing wrong and we get discouraged. Rather being grateful that this sin has been exposed so it can be exterminated and we can walk in, in, in harmony with our God again, we get discouraged at our lack of faithfulness. We're sad that we couldn't do it on our own. And so the, rather than repent and dive back into the arms of our Savior, we seek to ease the pain of that discouragement through the commission of even more sin. Isn't this true of mankind? The particularly clever might even sin, convincing themselves that he's punishing himself by going back to this sin because he clearly doesn't deserve the Lord. It's just another excuse to do what the flesh desires, friends. The problem with that kind of thinking should be clear. None of us deserve the Lord, not one. You didn't deserve him before you fell back into the pit of sin that you're currently in if you are in sin. What you must do when you are confronted with your sin is simply run to the sanctuary, grab the altar, plead for mercy because it is only ever the grace of God that has caused you to be washed clean. And it's the reason why you can be near to him in the first place. Gomer, she falls back into her sin. She doubles down. She said, I will go after my lovers. But there is a problem here. She can't get to them. She cannot get to those suitors who formerly were a thrill to her. Try as she might, their embrace eludes her, and the blessings that she thought that they were providing has quickly dried up. And this is because the husband she has forgotten has not forgotten Hosea is not content to simply let her run away from him. And so we begin to see that while Hosea is enlisting the help of their three children in this plea to Gomer to repent, he too is taking action to bring her sin to an end. Verse 6, Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. So Hosea's plan is straightforward here. 
He's going to cut off his wife's access to those who had formerly defiled her. Now, we're not told exactly how this would be done. I, I can imagine how I would do it if I was in a similar situation to Hosea. It might involve going and getting my, my shotgun or something. Okay? That's, not, that's not what the scripture tells us happens here. It doesn't say that he brought them to court. It doesn't say that he acted as a vigilante against them. We're, we're not told exactly how this is accomplished. We are told that Hosea will not be a spectator in this. This sin is a problem, and in order to deal with the problem, Hosea will step in and he will cut off his wife from the temptation itself. If our culture has set the tone for your understanding of love, and I pray that it has not, then Hosea's behavior might begin to put you off a little bit here. Because he doesn't simply say, wow, I really love my wife, and if, if this is what she wants... If this is what's going to make Gomer happy, then I guess I'll just back off and I'll let her follow her heart. We live in a world where that is increasingly becoming the definition of what love is. Just back off and let people do what they want to do. It's not love. If God exists, that is not love. Love is wanting what God wants for the people that you love. And so that's how Hosea cares for his wife, Gomer. Don't fault him for this but see instead in this heart a desire for reconciliation and redemption, a desire for that sin that has corrupted his wife's heart and has hurt his family to be done away with once and for all. He will go to extremes to do this. He says, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I love what uh, James Boyce notes in his commentary. He, he, just, he sees here a distinct contrast regarding this interesting defensive feature, this hedge of thorns, and, and another mention of it in Scripture. In a literal sense, a hedge of protection is, is like a wall of bushes that somebody who owns some land would, would grow up. And that, that bush that was a, a bush that yielded thorns and was very difficult to get through, they would make it like the border of perhaps their vineyard or a property they didn't want a lot of wild animals getting into or, or some unseemly character to have access to. And so they would grow up this hedge and it would act almost like a fence of barbed wire. Remember when resurrected Jesus confronts Saul would later become known as Paul on the road to Damascus. And he asks him, why do you kick against the pricks? That's what he's talking about there. He's referring to the fact that, that the scripture has set boundaries for what we should think of God. And Saul has gone beyond those boundaries. He is pushing up against what God has ordained. God has sent Messiah. And Messiah has come and has offered redemption to Israel through his blood. And Paul has seen it and has rejected it. He's pushing against the boundary that God has set. And so Boyce notes this kind of illustration in a different part of Scripture. He looks back to the book of Job. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Job chapter 1. Most of us are fairly familiar with the story of Job there in the Old Testament, a book of wisdom that illustrates the limits of man's understanding and faithfulness. So in Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, Satan has come to interact with God in heavenly. There's like a heavenly council going on. And so the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So you see the role that the hedge plays there. 
Satan is saying, there's a reason why Job loves you, God, and it's because you've put a hedge around him to keep sin out of his life, to keep the fallenness of creation from impacting him in a negative way. And he says, you take away that hedge, you take away that that hedge of thorns, and you let in the wickedness from the outside, and the effects of the world will break him down, and he will curse you. The similar imagery of this thorny hedge is used here in Hosea, but to the very opposite end. In Job's story, a similar hedge keeps sin away from Job. In Hosea's story, the thorny hedge keeps Gomer away from her sin. It is Hosea's love for his wife that will not allow her to go back to the thing that he knows will defile her. Both express the same shepherding love that God holds for his people. It just simply acknowledges it from two different angles. However Job accomplishes this, we don't know the details of it, but his efforts are going to be somewhat effective here. Verse 7, She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. She gets to the point as this affection that others have had for her starts to dry up, that she starts to realize without that counterfeit love around, what do I have? She begins to think back to the love that Hosea has shown to her, the kindness that he exhibited to her, and the covenantal commitment that he had exhibited in their uh, lives to begin with. And she's grieved. As the prodigal son found himself to be miserable in the pig trough and determined to swallow his pride, and returned to his father's estate seeking mercy. Though he had treated his father terribly, though he had disrespected his father, he realizes that the love my father had for me is better than anything I'm going to find out here trying to get by on my own power. And so he went back. Gomer finds herself alone and unsatisfied. The practical realization will eventually come to her. I didn't know how good I had it when I was with Hosea. What seemed better over here on the other side of the fence was a mirage. I must return. To my husband. But where the prodigal son in that parable story does stop in his tracks and he does make his way back to his father with humility, Gomer does not seem to do that here. This is often the case in Israel's history. If you look back, that there will be these moments of clarity where they'll see, I've done wrong, I need to repent, I will do better. But sadly, you don't see that actually play out in their actions. A superficial repentance that does not manifest in true faith is not repentance. And so God presses the point more firmly. Verse 9, Therefore, Hosea says, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which would cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. So besides hedging her off from her suitors, Gomer's marriage blessings are now taken away in order to help her feel the shame of her lack of faithfulness to him so that she might not be able to deceive herself any longer. The truth is a weapon that Hosea is using to kill off this desire for sin. So what does he hold back from her? What does he take away from his wife? He takes away the grain, the wine, and the oil. These are things that she needs to survive. They're the basic staples of life that Hosea has continually offered to his wife. But now as she begins to see that she needs to repent but isn't quite ready to do so, he pulls that grain back. He's not going to give her what she needs anymore. He's going to let her see what it's like to live without a husband. He pulls back the wool 
and the flax. And this has significance tied to our passage from last week because last week we talked about how part of Gomer's indiscretion was her willingness to paint up her face and to, to show more of her body to her suitors, that she dressed like a prostitute. And so what does Hosea do? He removes the wool and the flax, the textiles with which she made her garments, and he leaves her naked. He provided covering for her before. He gave her food and he gave her covering, but now he's going to take that away. You're going to have to provide for yourself, says Hosea. These things he now removes from her. No more will she use the resources that he has given to provide for her a way to allure these false lovers and these men to defile the marriage bed. And the withdrawal of this resource exposes her sin and brings about an appropriate shame that acts as a proof to her of how much Hosea had loved her by providing for those needs in the first place. If he withdraws that love, do her sinful lovers step in and meet her needs? Do these men that were her suitors for a time, do they come in and rescue her? They do not. No one shall rescue her. They are not there for her good, but for their own pleasure. And so Hosea does the difficult thing of making her see that her sin has done this to her. And this is where the metaphor between the family of, of Hosea and Gomer and the nation of Israel, it's easier to see this in light of how God's interaction with Israel plays out because he does begin to remove favor from this northern kingdom. The, the fruitfulness that they had, the, the figs begin to wither and the, the vines stop producing fruit like they did before. And the things that made Israel have a sense of national pride in themselves begin to be stripped away and eventually Assyria comes into the northern kingdom and puts them to the sword and begins to conquer them. What military might they thought they had, the confidence they had in and of themselves is laid to waste and they see that the only reason that Israel was ever a great nation was because Yahweh was their God. Hosea removes one final thing from her. He removes the misguided celebration that she enjoyed when she was going after these false suitors. And again, this, this translates best when we look at the big picture of Israel. No longer will they be able to run to Molech or to Baal or to Asherah and try to find a different source of supplication and provision because those aren't even real gods. There is no true substance behind those false deities that Israel had been flirting with. There is joy in worshiping God and God alone. He has not made it a detestable thing to worship Him. And, and we experience that this morning, today, church, don't we? As we gather together in His name, we experience the fellowship of the saints. Is this a hard thing for us to do? Is it difficult for us to stop our work and to rest for a day? And to really think about the glory of God? Is it really that difficult for us to give our gifts to the blessing of our brothers and sisters? To help one another out in prayer? This is what God has called us as his people to do. Is it not a gift to us to worship him in this way? But we see even the proper modes of worship that Israel had been given earlier in the covenant time are removed. He doesn't let them have the Sabbath anymore or the new moons or the festivals. Those things are pulled away and this indicates what's going to happen when Assyria comes into the northern kingdom and overruns them and displaces them. They won't have the autonomy that they did before to experience these blessings of worship that to them lost their meaning when they stopped caring for God and God alone. God's inter intervention here in the circumstances of Israel is to show them that created things can never satisfy us like God himself can satisfy us. In Israel's case, God as a jealous husband will take measures to prevent his unfaithful wife Israel from finding her false joy in the things of the world and in the false gods that man has created for himself.
Now let us think carefully about this for a minute. Can our sin give us satisfaction? Our sin has undeniably an allure to it. That's why it's difficult for us to shake, right? Usually this allure, this desire for sin is undergirded by a misunderstanding or a distortion of what is good in our lives. God gives us sexuality in the covenant of marriage to be a blessing to propagate humankind and to rejoice in the bodies that he has given to us. But man takes that and twists it and distorts it and makes it into immorality and makes it into a travesty that doesn't reflect God's love for us, but reflects instead our hunger and thirst for self-gratification. Our sin does have an undeniable allure to it. But when that allure grabs hold of us and overcomes the truth that God has proclaimed to us, we're made to worship the wrong thing. We're ordered to love, but we mistake personal obsession for love. We are supposed to exercise dominion and authority as part of God's command to us, but we desire to do so in ways that offend the authority that is above us always. By design, the very nature of the object of our pursuit must and will fall short of what we really need. What we need is to enjoy God in a trusting way that acknowledges His power and His authority in our lives, to be satisfied in Him and all that He so chooses to provide, to give to us or to keep us from. When God denies His children, He does so in love. He does so for their good. And that is what happens to Israel here. There is the danger of thinking that God is like some kind of scorned lover who's striking back at the one who disappointed him by injuring her in some petty way. And this is absolutely not the case, friends. Unfaithfulness is a serious problem, one that needs to be crushed before it ruins the person who's caught up in it and it ruins the bonds that they have with people who truly love them. This is absolutely not the case that God has come in and just scornfully flippantly punished Israel to get back at her. Yahweh's love for his bride is not absent from these penalties, even in the case of her shame being revealed, for Israel's pride has got to be laid low in order for her to see the truth of it and really repent. Now, ultimately, this is, this is an interesting turn, and we're going to see more of it as we go in the book of Hosea. Ultimately, Hosea will win his wife back. Hosea purchases her back from from this idolatrous whoring that she's involved with. When we get to chapter 3, we're going to see how that boldly signs forward to the wonderful reclamation of God's people that happens through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. He purchases the church of, of God with His blood. So Hosea's family does have a sense of reconciliation and restoration. But for the northern kingdom that the family of Hosea was supposed to represent, there isn't the same kind of reconciliation. She does not see her shame and repent. Remember that as we began this book, we identified the northern kingdom of Israel as the prime target of the prophecy? That is certainly true. But as the story of Hosea's life and the history of the northern, northern kingdom's collapse unfolds, we begin to see that this prophecy is in many ways also a functional warning to the southern kingdom of Judah. They were learning from the tragedy of their sisters in the north. They were observing as their, their, their brethren in the northern kingdom continually broke the laws of God and sought after false idols and trusted in foreign nations for their security instead of in Yahweh. And God is, is declaring to the southern kingdom, learn from the north. Do not fall into the same self-deceptive sin which is ruining the covenant with that group of people. Does God forsake his covenant forever? 
Absolutely. God is not a breaker of promises. But he will no longer be represented by those in the north. His image will be borne by the southern kingdom. It is the southern kingdom through which the seed of David comes and through which the Messiah is made. So, friends, as we think about this self-deception that Gomer, that Gomer brought upon herself, don't get so caught up in Gomer's failure, but get caught up in the victory of Christ. Get caught up in the fact that the Lord God will not let his covenant people go, that there is a commitment that God gives to his people that can never be undone, and that God will surely keep that remnant of his own for himself forever. He is the faithful husband that refuses to step back and say, well, if that's what you want, then go ahead and do what you want. This God that we love and worship today is a God who has intervened, a God who has said, I will not let you remain in your sin, a God who has pulled us out of our sin, and has given us the light of his salvation through amazing grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your wonderful mercy, and we thank you for the word. Here, 730 or 750 years before Christ came, you are painting a backdrop of grace in the nation of your people, and we pray, God, that we would miss those connections, that we wouldn't fail to rejoice in the fact that all of Scripture is the word of Jesus Christ and is about his victory and his triumph. And so we praise you, Lord, to be living in a time when we can look back on the cross and recognize it for what it is. But Father, that only happens when you are sovereignly moving our eyes in the right direction and and removing our blindness and our deafness. And so we pray, God, that you would continue to do that. Give us a, a boldness and a courage to evaluate our own hearts. Father, if there be sin in our lives, let us be committed to putting that sin to death. And Father, if there is somebody that we love that we need to to confront one-on-one, God, give us the gentleness, but also the the forcefulness to come and do that in a way that helps them to understand that there is no joy apart from your truth, Lord God. We love you and thank you for all that you do for us. And we praise you uh, for the way that your will is unfolding even in the present, uh, present day. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.